first sermon in Lincoln. Take a moment. <laughs> Deep breaths for all of us, for all of us. This is an exciting week for everybody in this room. So, in the first year I spent in my current office in Long Island, I killed three houseplants. <laughs> After the third jade plant succumbed, I have taken a brief hiatus. My wife told me I couldn't buy any more houseplants for my office for a while. I have some theories on what might have been the cause. But it's a strange thing. Coming from a family of farmers and gardeners, not to be able to keep a succulent going for more than six months. <laughs> I come from a family of growers. My grandfather, Jack Sinclair, came home from the war and did two things. He went to Michigan State, to the ag school up there, on the GI Bill, and he married Mary Maxine Finkbeiner after one blind date. I knew my grandma Maxine as an elementary school teacher and Grandpa Jack as a fruit farmer in southwest Michigan. When I was 10, Grandpa started putting me to work whenever I visited. We would come for the weekend, and one afternoon, he'd say, you should come out to the greenhouse with me. And I would spend an afternoon usually transplanting seedlings, moving them from one tray to another carefully as they grew. The little apple seedlings would eventually be grafted and planted in the orchard, but they started out in the greenhouse behind Grandpa's home. Tall tales of wandering Johnny apple seeds aside, it takes more than just planting a seed to cultivate a fruit tree. It is a complicated thing. At the end of an afternoon in the greenhouse, Grandpa would usually call me Squirt, put a couple dollars in my pocket. It's a good job, I'll see you, see you tomorrow. Dollars that I would then go spend on model rockets. <laughs> I think my grandfather thought he was grooming me to, to be a farmer. I thought I was getting spending money to start my career as an astronaut. <laughs> and we both, um, we both a little wide of the mark. That greenhouse is one of the first lived experiences I had of the intergenerational nature of gardening, of farming, of life. My grandfather cared for trees that he had not planted. And while he has since died, the, seed, the seedlings I helped him to transplant are less than 25 years old. That orchard is probably still producing apples. Maybe some other 10-year-old is transplanting the next generation of seedlings. Cultivation extends through generations. It helps to connect them. Years later, 
I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the village of Bobete in the country of Lesotho. Bobete is an oft-overlooked village in an oft-overlooked country on an oft-overlooked continent. The ground in that part of Africa doesn't grow much. Lesotho is basically a mountain range. And whether there were once forests there or not, there are none now. What little fertile soil there is each year washes down canyons quickly every rainy season. What does grow, well enough to survive on, is field corn. Virtually all of the households in my village were subsistence farmers. The staple meal was ground corn boiled into a hard porridge called papa. And you can live on papa, though a diet of ground cornmeal is neither nutritionally complete or gastronomically interesting. <laughs> Most families would try instead to serve papa and morojo, porridge and vegetables. Vegetables, spinach, chard, carrots. They did not naturally grow in the soil in Lesotho. So they built keyhole gardens. Keyhole gardens get their name from their shape when seen from above. It's a circular raised garden about waist high. They have a wedge cut in to allow access to a, a center compost pile built into the garden. The garden is so high for two reasons. One, Lesotho is in the midst, was and is in the midst of a major epidemic of HIV and AIDS. So most of the people that are gardening are very ill or very old. It is hard to bend at the waist. Secondly, and critically, the gardens are built with layers of yucca, soil, wood ash, soil, and we'll call it organic fertilizer. <laughs> this allows good soil to form in a way that's not washed away by the rainy season. Vegetables grow well in the keyhole gardens of Bobete. And for families that built them, it was a supplement to subsistence. It is the difference between survival and flourishing. I actually built a keyhole garden with my father. The year after I came home from Peace Corps, we followed the directions I had written down, built a frame out of edging stones, put in four feet of layered soil, wood ash, and bagged organic fertilizer <laughs> from Lowe's. We planted tomatoes. And by the end of the summer, the tomato plants had grown taller than I am. Turns out, bagged organic fertilizer from Lowe's is somewhat more um, effective than fertilizer you have gathered yourself. And so I learned a design built to respond to the needs of one environment will react differently if you move it. Dad still talks about the tomatoes that summer that were too high for any of us to reach. So they just <laughs> rotted up there on the vine until they fell to the ground and the deer ate them. 
My parents brought my sister and I to our first Unitarian Universalist church when I was in high school. We had followed a, a certain trajectory through my childhood. Might be familiar to some of you. We started out as Methodists, and then we went to a UCC church, and then in high school we went to a Unitarian Universalist Church of Binghamton in New York. Unitarian Universalism stuck for me. If you go to that congregation in Binghamton, my handprint is on the youth room wall. But my folks kept that art going through and out of organized religion. My father could have written that reading this morning for as many times as I have looked out the window earlier than I ever want to be awake and seen him in the dew and his slippers walking through his garden and weeding. He says his garden is his church. Wendell Berry is his scripture. My folks bought a plot of land a few years back, just a few miles outside of town. Dad, an academic, has really leaned into farming at this stage of his life. He's cultivated almost an acre by hand. He calls the land Thistle Rock. He says it grows stones and potatoes in equal measure. <laughs> And so when I visit, I go out to that land with him, working to dig out stones and potatoes, dodging the thistle that covers the hillside. I don't dream of using spending money to start a career as an astronaut anymore. Instead, we work and talk and sweat, sink into those comfortable, companionable silences not because we have nothing to say to each other, but because there are no words for the moment that we have. Last time I was in town, we went to work digging trenches for another row of potatoes. And I finally asked, after one of those companionable silences, why? We've spent hours planting potatoes. Not exactly a cash crop. <laughs> and unlike, say, those sweet peas over there that we planted last time, the tubers aren't significantly better for having grown them yourself instead of bought them at a grocery store. Dad thought about it. He said to tend to something, to watch it germinate, watch it grow, water it, till it comes to full fruit. That is one of the holiest things in life. I told him maybe we're in the same business. <laughs> There's a story in the Christian scriptures about a sower who throws seeds across the ground. Maybe you know this, or this story. Some land on hard stone, some in briars, some in shallow earth. Only a few land in good soil and grow. This, the gospel says, is people who have heard the good news. But that is not, in my experience, what church is about. Folks don't just have the luck to land in good soil. 
Soil has to be cultivated. Ministry, the, the shared ministry that we'll talk about all through this week, is nothing if not cultivation. Think of all the work we do here. Together, tending this church across generations. Everybody in this room cares for an institution that they did not found. We hope that the work that we do will live beyond our time here. This is intergenerational work. And I am convinced that at this time in history, in 2017, when reports are that church attendance is dwindling overall, those of us that are here as members are here because we have found a supplement to subsistence. That being in and tending to this community can be the difference in our lives between survival and flourishing. We each cultivate this place in different ways. For, for some, it might be literal weeding. I saw a garden out there. <laughs> Others tending to the needs of membership. Some set up governance structures, serve on committees. Of course, this work is not easy, peaceful. It's not always fun. I've been in churches long enough to know that invariably, organic fertilizer happens. <laughs> But even when it does, it can enrich the culture of a congregation. It can deepen its capacity to hold difference, to hold the truths that we all bring here. David Horst reminds us in this reading that often after a garden is weeded, it doesn't look like much has happened. The same can be true at times in religious community, but over time, over years, over generations, loving care is what makes gardens and congregations flourish. The weeding might not look like much in the moment, but in the fullness of time, the garden shines. So, standing here at the start of candidating week, having looked at the material for this congregation for the last, a while, we'll just put it that way, <laughs> I see a church that has been well tended to. A capital campaign, new space for religious growth and learning, a covenant of right relations, a governance structure about to bloom, these are signs of health. I cannot wait to dig into it with you over the course of the next week and whatever comes next. So I've been on a hiatus from plants in my office. So Stacy tells me at least. But with the right light, with the right soil, a little bit of care, I have heard that Nebraska has good soil. <laughs> 